Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Meg Terrell. I'm Adam Feuerstein. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, May 12th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. First, a quick update on where we stand with COVID and a surprising personnel announcement from Moderna. Then we'll look at some of the good news in biotech, finally some M&A, and bad news, a major clinical trial setback. We'll also examine what's happened with the arrest of the CEO of a $22 billion biotech company and how that company reacted. But first, a word about a new STAT podcast. For far too long, racism has created a crisis in American healthcare. The whole system has failed my niece, and they are continuing to fail women of color. We say something is wrong with us, it's ignored. No one is listening. My name is Nicholas St. Fleur. I'm a science reporter and host of Color Code, a new podcast from STAT. I mean, I have a mistrust in the medical establishment and I'm a researcher, like, and, 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 and part of mine is just of how I've seen providers treat my family members. Color Code takes a hard look at the forces behind the stark inequities faced by Black clinicians and patients. You can find Color Code on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and wherever you get your podcasts. You know, our education related to health equity kind of sucks, like in med school, right? And I'm tired of having these conversations over and over and over. And someone is like, oh, no, it's not because of X, Y, and Z inequality. And I'm like, actually, it is. Racism in medicine is a national emergency. Let's raise the alarm. So Meg, let's kick off with a quick COVID update. Yeah, it's been nice to not have to focus on COVID quite so much lately, although it always does crop up. But one thing that you know is really kind of striking is if you look at the case numbers nationally right now, we're in the middle of a fairly significant wave. I often see news stories saying, oh, but it's nothing compared to the 800,000 cases a day we were seeing over the winter. And yeah, that's true. But before the Omicron surge, a wave of now more than 80,000 cases per day was considered like pretty serious. So that is where we are. Cases are up now, you know, 60% in the last two weeks. Hospitalizations have also started rising, but we've been hearing from public health authorities that the nature of the hospitalizations seems to be different. There are fewer people in ICUs, fewer people using ventilators. There does seem to be this built-in protection in society, either from previous infection or from vaccines and boosters, uh, that is helping keep this hopefully milder, you know, less of a strain on the healthcare system. But I think a lot of people are still fairly worried about that. You know, deaths have not followed suit as quickly as they have in the past. They have sort of remained steady for the last two weeks at more than 300 a day. So that's still a significant number of deaths happening from COVID. So, you know, I don't know. Are you guys changing anything about your behaviors? Yeah, you know, here here in the uh, cozy confines of Cambridge, Mass., uh, it's definitely, you're definitely hearing about more reports. Anecdotally, personally, I know people who have gotten COVID. And I think, but at the same time, I think, I, I know personally, I got a little bit lackadaisical about masks. Like, you know, I was wearing 
I was wearing a mask on the train to work, and then I kind of sort of stopped doing that. And so this is a good reminder. Uh, I'm back to wearing masks on the train, and and even wearing them in stores now, like grocery stores. Just I mean, just as a precaution, because yeah, I mean, you can definitely feel it here that the case the case numbers have gone up. Yeah, um, I, I I have the same experience. You know, the other thing that's kind of different about the situation where we are now is Paxlovid finally starts to be seeming like it's pretty available. And most of the people that I know of who are older have been prescribed Paxlovid and have been able to get it fairly easily, which is very different from a couple months ago. Um, But of course, we've also been hearing these reports of viral rebound with Paxlovid, where essentially you, you take the course of drugs for five days and you test negative, you feel better, your symptoms go away. And then suddenly your symptoms come back a few days later and you test positive again. And we don't know how widespread this is. It was described initially as being very rare. I do know of at least one person personally who's experienced this, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's super common. Um, it does seem like doctors are now warning you can be contagious if if you're testing positive again after a course of Paxlovid. So that's just something to be aware of. Um, it doesn't mean that the drug's not working. I heard Ashish Jha on Andy Slavitt's podcast this week saying, you know, it's still really helping keep people out of the hospital. That is the most important thing about this drug. Um, but, you know, the other thing I'll just say about this moment in time is like we all hoped we'd be moving on from the pandemic at this point. And now it seems like the narrative among public health people is like, this is just what we're going to be living with. Like, we might be in for another really big fall winter surge. We also might not be. We just don't know. On that down note, thanks, Meg, for that. Uh, That's what I'm here for. Damien, Damien, there was a a shakeup in the uh, C-suite of Moderna this week. Tell us about that. That's right. So spring is here. And with that comes the season in which publicly traded companies put out their annual reports and we find out how much they paid their executives the prior year, which leads to quite a bit of gawking and and consideration as to how we pay executives in publicly traded companies uh, in this country, specifically in healthcare. In fact, I would recommend a story on stat by our colleague Bob Herman about the uh, incredible hauls that insurance company executives made in 2021. Now, (laughs) not to be outdone, Moderna managed to pay a guy about $350,000 per day for his employment in their C-suite. That is maybe a ridiculous way to describe this. Basically, here's the story. In April, Moderna announced that they were hiring a new chief financial officer to replace the one who was retiring. And they picked a guy named Jorge Gomez, who worked for a dental supply company called Dent Supply, conveniently enough. He started on May 9th. So that was Monday. On May 10th, Dentsply disclosed that they were conducting an internal investigation about a lot of things about their business, including the financial reporting and the accuracy thereof, leading to May 11th, when Moderna announced that Jorge Gomez would depart the company effective immediately, meaning that he worked exactly the 9th and the 10th. And we learned from their filing with the SEC that he was still guaranteed his $700,000 annual salary, which is to say he will make $350,000 a day for his time at Moderna. I mean, well done, Jorge. (laughs) (laughs) i mean i don't know i don't know what else to say about that but seven hundred thousand dollars for two days of work i mean that's that's pretty good it's not bad um we should note uh that according to moderna he will forego his signing bonus which peter loftus of the wall street journal pointed out was five hundred thousand dollars so there was some cost so Damien, any any I mean, what's the what's the spillback on I mean, obviously, you know, they I mean, should they have known about this investigation that was being conducted at his former employer? I mean, or is this this just like happenstance? It's like bad timing. And, you know, and you sort of move on. 
It's tough. I mean, it doesn't look great. They they will move on and they'll be fine. You know, as we've talked about on this podcast, Moderna is still basically printing money. It is imperative that they find a permanent chief financial officer because they're transitioning to this new stage where they're a profitable biotech company, which just two years ago, they seem to be years and years away from becoming. That being said, with the Jorge Gomez situation, you know, I don't know what they know or, or when they learned it. However, you know, in fairness, last month, Dentsply, his his previous employer, fired its CEO and removed him from its board of directors just one day. And I think it's clear now that that's probably related to this uh, internal investigation. But you could assume that Moderna might have had some questions when they saw that take place, which, of course, was before Gomez started. But perhaps they received enough assurances to where it seemed like everything was going to be fine. And then it just reached a fever pitch this week where they felt the need to change direction. So pivoting to the good biotech news of the week, I think a collective hallelujah went up among biotech investors uh, on the morning that Pfizer announced it would buy Biohaven for more than $11 billion in cash. Adam, what was the sense from people you were talking with? Yeah, I think you're right, Meg. I mean, I think there was a feeling of like jubilation <laughs> that this deal when it, when, it, when it crossed the wires on Tuesday morning, like you said, Pfizer's buying Biohaven. They make a, a migraine treatment that is approved here in the United States. It's called uh, Nurtec ODT. And, you know, I think as we've talked about on this podcast before, you know, there has been the sense that um, M&A is kind of one of the, the signals that people are looking for to kind of get us out of this uh, this meltdown in biotech stocks. Uh, and, you know, we all know that a lot of the major pharma companies have tons of cash on their books and they have needs to fill both in their pipelines and in sort of their in their earnings and sales growth. And so there has been this kind of expectation that we were going to see lots of deals and you know, we finally saw one to the tune of, you know, almost $12 billion here, Pfizer buying Biohaven. So yeah, people were excited. I have to say, though, you know, uh, if you look at biotech stocks generally, since Tuesday, I mean, there was a little bit of a blip on Tuesdays, things went up. And then the the like the descent into sort of hell continued. Um, and, and biotech stocks are making like new lows every day. So we haven't really seen um, you know, the jubilation that we felt on Tuesday, we haven't sort of seen that reflected in stock prices generally. Yeah. And we can go more into that um, a little bit later. But um, Damien, I'm also wondering, like, you've done a lot of work on this class of drugs where Nurtec is. And it's different because it's an oral versus there's a lot of competing drugs from much bigger companies um, that are injectables. Can you just tell us like a little bit about this migraine mechanism and just the dynamics of of what we're seeing? Yeah, it's really interesting in that, you know, if you've talked to anyone who suffers from migraine, um, I mean, one, it's, it can be truly debilitating and affect people's ability to do anything, work, uh, be with their families. But for really most of, I guess, recorded human history, the approach to treating migraine was this hodgepodge of prescribing medicines that may or may not work. It may lead to rebound headaches. They're um, appropriated from other indications. And it was just this this horrible diagnosis to get because doctors quite often were just throwing things at the wall trying to treat it. About 10 years ago or so, um, scientists devised basically the first migraine-specific way of dealing with this pain, which is that looking biologically at what happens when people have a migraine, they isolated this protein called CGRP. So the biohaven drug that you mentioned um, targets CGRP, so too do injectable medicines from Amgen and Eli Lilly and others. And basically we watched, um, like I said, over about the past decade, these drugs grow from promising ideas to things that looked good in early trials to things that worked in large-scale trials to these FDA-approved medicines. These are not 
cures for migraine by any means. Um, what you're talking about is basically a reduction in the average number of migraine days per month for patients in these trials. But again, if you talk to people for whom uh, living with migraine is a reality, that in itself is is incredibly valuable. And so it's, yeah, it's one of those, you know, decade-long overnight science success stories that, that I remember not too long ago looked like it might be kind of debatable, and then they worked and they got approved, and then there was debate over what exactly the market demand would be based upon pricing, based upon some being oral, some being um, subcutaneous injections, one being an infusion. And that kind of culminates to now, Pfizer's acquisition of Biohaven is kind of a validation of those years and years of investment, both scientifically and, and business-wise, to where you know now the, the biggest drug company in the world is is getting behind this idea. And it's kind of an interesting deal in the way they structured it, too, because they bought all the CGRP assets, but then they're giving half a share in a new biohaven to investors. And this is going to be like a new publicly traded company that focuses on the other pipeline assets that biohaven has, which um, I think are in areas like ALS. I mean, they're they're quite different. It was just interesting that Pfizer didn't just buy the whole kit and caboodle. Yeah, I think Pfizer has sort of de-emphasized kind of neurology as a as an area of interest. And so, you know, they obviously are very interested in CGRP. They're interested in migraine. Um, you know, it's interesting in this, you know, they they bought a company that is, you know, has a product on the market and that, you know, it's not, not a mature product, but a product that's been on the market for a little while versus like buying kind of more of a development stage company. I mean, they may do that later on. But yeah, so, you know, they've spun that out and that will be a new company that will develop those those assets. Right. And then the ramifications for the rest of biotech. I mean, on the day that this happened, there were a number of stocks that people were speculating about or companies that people were speculating about that could be the next takeover targets. And some of those rose quite a bit on that day. Companies like Biomarin, which has been talked about forever as a biotech takeover um, Horizon Pharma, Intracellular was up 22% uh, in the middle of the day. I mean, they also had earnings that day. Um, and Neurocrine. Um, you know, it seems like companies are looking for late stage assets because there's a big there's a big uh, patent cliff at the end of this decade for a lot of big pharma companies. They've got a lot of cash. So at some point, we're going to see this happen more, right? Well, I mean, you know, constantly searching for whatever the opposite of a silver lining is, one would assume yes, because that's how business works. But I think it's important to note with the Biohaven deal that the price at which Pfizer is acquiring it is roughly what the company was trading for on the open market as recently as November. Now, obviously, Biohaven, like all of biotech, had come down. But the fact that they accepted this deal suggests that if the many, you know, pick your favorite takeover target is in fact going to become an actual takeover, they too might have to kind of find religion and get over the biotech, I don't know if bubble is the right word, the biotech boom of the past few years and just put those previous validation or valuations out of mind and accept that, you know, if, if you're going to come to the table with someone like Pfizer, you're probably not going to be able to command the kind of premium that you thought you deserved circa 2021. So then on the flip side of the jubilant <laughs> biotech news this week, there was quite a, a surprising um, release from Roche about um, its cancer drug. We talked about it a few weeks ago, but Adam, maybe catch us up. 
Yeah, we had the highs and we had the lows. Uh, all right, so Roche on Wednesday announced the results from really kind of a very highly anticipated clinical trial that involved a, a cancer immunotherapy that targets a protein called TIGIT. Um, we all know about PD-1, PD-L1, checkpoint inhibitors, you know, the most dominant class of cancer immunotherapies out there right now. The TIGIT class of drugs is kind of one of these very buzzworthy class of a new class of immunotherapies that several companies are developing drugs, Roche being the most advanced. They have a very large uh, clinical trial program across many different kinds of cancer. Non-small cell lung cancer obviously being one of the most dominant and important types of cancer. So this study was read out uh, results uh, this week, and unfortunately, it did not work. The Roche anti-TIGIT drug, when combined with their PD-1 inhibitor called Tecentric, that combination did not uh, slow the growth of tumors any faster than just Tecentric alone. Um, that was one of the main goals of the study. It did not meet that goal. They also are looking at survival in this study, and the survival data um, are what the company said was immature, which basically means that they have not um, they have not been able to collect enough events, you know, i.e., patient deaths, um, to make any decision about whether or not this TIGIT compound will prolong the survival of patients. You know, that story is a reminder that one of the other undercurrents of the last decade plus of biotech and, and biological history is that immunology is very complicated. Um, to your point, you know, the, the PD-1 treatments like Keytruda or Roche's own Tecentric, which is PDL one whatever, checkpoint inhibitors um, are these incredible treatments that led to this truly like revolution in cancer treatment over the early years of the last decade. Um, but they still remain useful or, or life-changing or life-saving for a relatively small percentage of cancer patients. But that was such a breakthrough that it, it made sense that scientists would find newer complementary targets within the immune system to simply widen the aperture of this technology and you know usher in yet another revolution in oncology. That has not happened. Um, we have heard about, watched the hype of, and watched the downfall of a handful of these acronymical targets, IDO, um, TIGIT maybe perhaps being the next one, in which a lot of exuberance leads to disappointment in the large-scale clinical trial. Obviously, TIGIT, you know, the, the book is not closed on this, and, and you know, similarly for a few other targets that we've talked about on this podcast, but this is just a reaffirmation of just how non-linear uh, this process has proved to be. Yeah, and I will say, you know, we love a plot twist on this podcast, and and. Roche and Tidget may have their own plot twist in hand because, you know, the study, they looked at this at an interim basis uh, and the study continues. So they're going to continue to follow these patients. They're going to continue following the patients for survival here. And, you know, they may at some later date, whether it be sort of into next year, they may determine that um, this Tidget drug actually does uh, provide a survival benefit for patients. There was this kind of huge debate argument on kind of Wall Street amongst healthcare investors and analysts, uh, uh, you know, kind of in the hours after the Roche announcement about, you know, it got really bogged down into statistics and about like how they were parsing the power of the study and whether or not Roche would be able to, you know, kind of have the statistical power to show a survival benefit later. And I'm I'm not going to get into the details here because you will all click off to your favorite true crime podcast. But needless to say, you know, Tidget is not done, as you as you mentioned, Damien, you know, uh, in, in addition to the study in non-small cell lung cancer, Roche is running a ton of other studies. And so, you know, I think the sort of the final verdict on this class of immunotherapies has yet to be written. 
And is it just Roche? I mean, there are a lot of other companies focused on this too, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, GlaxoSmithKline. You've got Gilead, who did a big partnership with Arcus uh, around there, Tidget Compound, Compugen. There's a bunch of companies um, that uh, you know, Merck has got one. So, yeah. So it's not just Roche um, that is betting heavily on this new class of immunotherapies. There's, you know, it's, it's much broader within the biopharma world. So we've now reached the Sejin Clay Seagal portion of the podcast. So if you are a parent uh, listening to this podcast in the car with the kids in the back seat, you might want to flip off to something else and listen again when you got your headphones in. Uh, Damien, what happened? Right. So on Monday, Sejin, formerly known as Seattle Genetics, put out a disclosure that its co-founder and CEO, Clay Seagal, was on a leave of absence, and the company noted that it was aware of allegations of domestic violence related to an incident that took place at his home, that he had denied those, and that it was conducting an independent investigation into the matter. Now, a few days later, we and, and, and other entities obtained the police report from that incident, um, which revealed that the allegations in question were tied to an arrest and a charge with fourth degree assault from that incident at Seagull's home and many other details uh, that, that we wrote about and others did as well. And so the question I had was, when did CGen know that he was arrested and charged and jailed for about 33 hours? And why didn't they disclose it in that Monday disclosure, which, like I said, it it acknowledged that there was this allegation and it noted that he had denied it and also noted that he told the company he was in the midst of a divorce. But as we learned, as we saw the documents, the incident in question was about five days before Seagal filed for that divorce. And so that initial statement from Seagen, to me, would raise more questions than it answered. We have asked, and I'm sure others have as well, those questions multiple times and the company so far has declined to respond to them. So I think some people might ask, like, why are we talking about or reporting on, you know, the CEO of a company and, you know, a divorce and, you know, allegations of domestic violence. And, and you know, and, and look, it's a legit news story. I mean, this is one of the largest uh, companies in biotech, uh, a very successful company, multiple products on the market. And so, you know, when a CEO of a company like that uh, does leave for these circumstances or for any circumstance uh, for that matter, it is uh, newsworthy. And as reporters and journalists who cover this industry, it's our obligation to report on it. And Damien, you're being you know, very careful about how you talk about it. Um, the details are you know, just just a little crazy. You know, reading your story, you obtained the, the police report. I, I mean, what what are the details that really stuck out from from that evening and like that led to this situation that Seagal is in now? Right. So according to the report, according to, to all the parties who spoke to officers, it began, the evening began fairly innocently um, on, on April 22nd with Seagal and his wife and three other couples going to dinner. Um, it stretched out into the wee hours with one couple that returned to the Seagal's mansion um, and everyone, according to the police report, was intoxicated so as I mentioned, there were two 911 calls, one from Seagal's wife and one from a guest, the, the husband and the other couple that was at their home, claiming that he was assaulting his wife. When officers arrived uh, around 3.50 in the morning, uh, they found a really chaotic scene. I mean, I'll spare you some of the details, but basically the, the sworn statement from the house guest, the man, 
uh, is that Seagal became enraged when he entered a bedroom and found his wife, that man, and that man's wife uh, asleep together. Um, and he then shoved his wife, Seagal shoved his wife down uh, more than once, resulting in injuries to her knees and forehead and, and later bruises. This is all according to her statements to police and to this man's statements to police. Seagal offered uh, two two versions of the story to his arresting officers, but both of which, what they had in common was that he did not do those things. He did not commit the assault. I have to say, and Meg, you read Damien's story, and we've talked about this, and, you know, we sort of have to balance the kind of, you know, sort of the just journalism and we have to report the facts, but you don't want to get too sensational about the incident here. But I mean, we are on a podcast and uh, it's a little bit different from a story. And so we can kind of say, I feel like that, look, this is what happened. These these, these two couples went back to the Seagal household, which is a very large mansion uh, in the suburbs of Seattle, and they were drunk and you know, there was, I, Damien, you referred to it as polyamorous activity going on uh, uh, during this during this evening. And one thing led to another. And uh, again, uh, there were allegations that Clay Segal, you know, assaulted his, his wife after this. And that's kind of that's kind of where we are. And, you know, it is you know, we've all read the we've read the police report. So, you know, the police report has goes into a lot more detail that maybe we don't want to talk about on this podcast. But, um, you know, that's kind of where that's the situation. And one of the craziest things, I mean, there's there's a lot of crazy things in your story, Damien, but like, it just, it was just a couple days after this whole thing happened, that Clay Seagal is on the company's quarterly earnings call, like, like, just totally normal. I mean, I guess I don't really know what he's supposed to do in this situation. But, like, the, it, it, the company's reaction didn't happen until later. So he's just sort of serving in his normal role after this all went down, right? Right. I mean, that that is what really piqued my interest. And especially in the moments where, uh, you know, understanding what we do for a living, where I wondered why I, as a biotech reporter, was reading through this 57-page document on a, you know, local crime in, in a place in Washington that I've never been before. But I reminded myself that it is my job to cover this company, which, as Adam, as you mentioned, is very influential within this industry. And that's where the timeline really became the thing that I have pressed them on. Because, as you mentioned, you know, he was released from jail on the 24th, which is a Sunday. On the 28th, which was a Thursday, he led, as you mentioned, their hour-plus earnings call. And in the sedate, placid, and kind of banal way that CEOs talk on earnings calls, one would never have guessed that there was anything amiss with this man who was, you know, days removed from from being charged with domestic assault. And life just kind of went on as normal. And it wasn't until, like I said, May 9th, that CGen put out this statement that he was on leave, um, which they didn't really, you know, the, the verbiage there doesn't really tell you whether he was placed on leave, whether he voluntarily did so, either way. That same statement says that it was on May 5th that they appointed an interim CEO. So that's 16 days, it's multiple weeks between his actual arrest and the company taking some form of action. And like I said before, the question I have and, and would love to hear an answer to is when did they learn of whether they want to term it as an allegation or whether they want to acknowledge the arrest. When did they learn of it? What happened? What conversations took place within the board, among the board members of this very large publicly traded company? And how did they decide to adjudicate it? Because, I mean, this is, as as people have pointed out, this is a serious allegation. This is not... Um, I don't. I don't want to end that with an example of a less serious crime. That's crazy. Um, yeah. 
Well, no, I mean, I mean, Damien, look, Damien, you're right. Like domestic assault is a serious allegation. It's a, it's a, it's it is serious, and we shouldn't joke about it. I mean, you know, we're not naming the wife on this podcast. You did not name identify the Clay Segal's wife's name in the report that you wrote because you know she is uh, an alleged victim uh, of this domestic assault, and we we don't identify people in that in that regard. And so I think, you know, we take that seriously. This obviously could have gone in many different directions. It went in a in a very dark and and you know, frankly sad direction, uh, an unfortunate direction, but like the things that sort of led up to the alleged incident, you know, do kind of I don't know, just yeah, it makes you just kind of like, you know, it makes your eyes pop, quite frankly. Yeah, and you you know, a lot of these cases where you you hear about CEOs being removed from their positions because of impropriety are for you know much less serious accusations. I mean, this is actual violence upon somebody else. Um, it's been really interesting. I've been trying to just sort of gauge the reaction from the biotech community around this, and I've sent the story to a few people, and the response has just been like, "Oh my god, like wow!" But like, oh yeah, my. When when Damien when Damien published the story when when Stab published the story yesterday afternoon my cell phone just went off like the texting ping 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 it was crazy how many people were texting me reactions to this thing but I have to say to your point Meg and maybe like I'm kind of going back to like the business side of this I had two investor friends separately say to me I wonder if this means Seijin will get sold I. I I have no idea. So you never know. As we, as we, you know, maybe going back to the M and A discussion that we had earlier today, you know, like maybe a company in turmoil like this, uh, you know, maybe that just sort of compels the board to sort of put the company up for sale. I really don't know. I mean, I think that you know what happens next is a natural question for anyone with any interest in this story, whether you know as an investor scientifically for the biotech cluster in Seattle, of which CGen is the major player. Um, and it's it's interesting because obviously everyone in the American justice system is innocent until proven guilty. This is a charge. Um, an entire legal process is, is yet to unfold as to whether uh, Seagal will be convicted of what he's been charged with. But being the CEO of a publicly traded company whose reputation you know, depends on a great many things. Who sells medicines? Um, it, it's just a, it's a different world. That's that's a privilege, not a right, to be that CEO. Um, I think it would be surprising if he keeps his job. Um, you know, the company hasn't said anything since that initial statement. They, as we said, they've uh, said that they're conducting an internal investigation, and have, they've not given a timeline as to when that investigation might come to a conclusion. But I, you know, I mean, you, you guys, let me know if you disagree. It, it seems, from people I've talked to, it seems like a foregone conclusion that Clay Seagal's time as CEO of CGen is quite likely really limited. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I cannot see a scenario under which he comes back as the CEO of CGen. It just, I, I would find that really hard to believe. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Embanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. And we'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like. 
And if you've ever heard us be more awkward about anything on this podcast, you can do all of that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, including using the word polyamory on a podcast, leave a review or a rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcast. See you next week. Okay, <laughs> Teresa, we're not it's using this, great. right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, we've already run off the rails. Okay. All right. And we're still only in the introduction. <laughs> Does Damien... Wait, do we need to do that line again? Oh, I nailed it. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'm good. Okay, my turn. <laughs> <laughs>